So uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series in the book of Philippians. This is week number six, studying through this epistle of Paul. This is known as Paul's epistle of joy. Paul wrote this uh, epistle, wrote this letter from prison. So the context of this should matter to us. The context of this should open our eyes up. He wrote this letter from prison all about joy. That his, his experience of joy actually grew deeper in his context, grew deeper um, in, in, in what he was walking through uh, being in prison. And he's leading the Philippian church. He's leading the, 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 this church that he planted. He's leading us, who, the readers of it, thousands of years later, to a deeper experience of joy. The problem with that is, and when you begin to unpack what's going on in this letter, you realize, wait, 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 wait. He's not leading me to joy the way that I want to be led to joy. Because the way that I want to be led to joy is I want, I want joy to come by things going my way. I want joy to come by winning at more things. I want joy to come by gaining more things. I want joy to come by becoming better at things, by adding to my life. But the way that Paul leads his people to joy is not that way. The way that Paul leads people to joy is he says, actually, if you want to gain more joy, you actually have to lose you have to die, you have to fail, you have to actually understand that you get to the bottom of the ladder, not the top of the ladder in the, in the kingdom of God. So Paul is leading the reader each week to say, hey, what are the things in your life that you need to lose your, your death grip on? What are the things in your life that you need to open up your hands on that you need to lose in order that you might gain a deeper experience of the joy of Jesus. So he's constantly taking the reader through, hey, you've got your clutch on this. You've got your, your, your eyes and your focus and your heart's affection on this thing. What is it that you might need to lose in order to gain more joy? So that's the setup. We've looked at several different things that Paul would lead the church to lose uh, to gain more joy. We're calling our sermon series Winning by Losing, The Path to Joy in Philippians. So if you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter two, starting in verse 12. Uh, Paul has, has been in this section uh, addressed to the church about how they, should, how they should be living towards each other, and this is what he says. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, because I'm in jail, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, uh, we come to this text uh, and, and we just sang out um, the, the all creatures of our God and King. We, we are coming to God, our creator. We're coming to God, our maker, uh, in his word that you've revealed yourself to us. Would you open our eyes? Um, would you help us to fall on bended knee before this text, before your word? Um, that we would let it shape us, that we would let it expose and, and direct and uh, shine a light in the dark places of our soul uh, that we need not only um, to, be, to be seen there, we need to be loved and covered there too. So would you do that through the mystery and majesty of your word and your spirit in this time with your people? 
Would you take your word and would you do that for us now, we pray. We pray also for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning, that you forgive him his sins, for they are many. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, Paul begins this next section of Philippians um, on the path to deeper joy, and right out of the gate, uh, this is what he says to them, is going to kind of set the scene, set the stage, set the the context for where we're going to head and what we need to lose uh, in this section. But listen to how he starts. He says in verse 12, will you throw this back up there, Ralston, he says this, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, work out your salvation. What is this working out that he's talking about? He's talking about going to the gym, like getting stronger and buffer. What is this working out idea, working out your salvation? Well, you can read it, and on the surface, the English words can make you think like, oh, he's talking about like when you need to figure out a problem and work it out, like when kids get in a fight and an argument, and you go, hey, y'all just, we all just work it out, please. Just find a solution, just work it out so that you, I don't have to deal with you anymore. Is that what Paul's saying? Like, work out your salvation, like figure it out yourself, just work it out. Well, it's not the intention of the Greek word that he says. The Greek word that he uses here actually has a lot more uh, depth to it, a lot more beauty to it than go figure out your salvation with fear and trembling. Go just, just, just work it out. The word that he uses is this idea of a producing, of a bringing forth, of a bringing about, like a farmer with seeds, like farmer. The seed has been planted, work it out, bring it out. The th- all the elements in that seed are, are there for it to be nourished and watered and get sunlight, where it would be worked out, where you would then produce the thing that that seed was meant to produce in you. It's like digging out a treasure. It's making explicit that which is implicit. It's, it's the idea of making tangible that which is spiritual. Something has been planted in you, Christian. Something has been made true about you, Christian. Now work that out of you. Produce it. You're not creating it. You're not inventing it. But the thing that's been put inside of you, work it out of you. Bring it forth like a farmer. Work it out. Water it. Nourish it. Tend to it. See to it. Labor over it. Give your attention to it. Work it out to where what's going on inside of you now is being worked out of you. There's something, Christian, that is inarguably true about you now. There's a reality about you that you've been redeemed, you've been forgiven, you've been adopted, you've been chosen, you've been delighted in, you've been forgiven, you've been pardoned. Now, Christian, work that out of you. Bring that reality that is inarguably true about you, work it out of you. Like a gardener, like a farmer, like a baker, like a chef. Take the ingredients that are there and make what it was meant to make in you. Bring it forth. Bring out what has been put in. And if you go, I don't know, that seems to be reading a lot into that one word, Elliot. Well, look at the very next line. He's making that point in the very next line. Verse 13, he says this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. This contrast, this clarity by contrast, this grammatical wordplay that Paul is trying to say, hey, Christian, work out of you the very thing that God has worked and continues to work in you. God planted it. God made it real. God accomplished all the work for it. God gave you a salvation. He accomplished the salvation for you. He has redeemed you and forgiven you and pardoned you and welcomed you into the family. And you are now a son and a daughter of the king. That's true about you because God worked it in you. Now, Christian, Work that out of you. Bring about that reality out of you to where it shines like stars. He says that, where it shines like stars in the world. 
where people would look at you and go, there's something about your life that I don't understand, that with all the chaos and with all the mess and all the fighting and all the hatred, that there's something going on in the church over there that's being worked out of them. They're, they're producing something in their community. It's what Paul has been talking about this entire chapter, if you've been listening. He starts the chapter by leading the church to be the beautiful community that has been worked into them. Hey, church, work this out of you. Live in harmony. Live in unity. Lay your life down for one another. What's been done for you should then begin to work out of you where you see yourself differently in the world. You see yourself differently in your marriage. You see yourself differently with your neighbors where the world looks at you and you're shining like stars because you're working out this fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the reality of your salvation, what's been done for you that's in you. Work it out of you. Let it transform you and do the work to work it out of you. Work in tandem with the God who is working in you. I don't mean to put this too bluntly or too offensively or to make something uh, too simple that is not all that simple, but here's what Paul is saying at the, at the basic level. Be a Christian. <laughs> if you're a Christian, be a Christian. Because as a Christian, let me tell you all the things that are true about you. You've been loved. You've been forgiven. You've been delighted in. You've been shown patience. You've been shown delight. You've been shown love. You've been shown welcome and pardon. Bring that out of you. Live like that's true about you. Work it out of you. Let the fruits of the Spirit be worked out of the seed of salvation that has been worked into you. Be kind, be gentle, be slow to anger, be compassionate, because that's what's been worked into you. So let's do it. Sermon done. Why can't you just go do that? Because there's a problem. There, there's, there's friction there. There's fits and starts of that to becoming the beautiful community that Paul wants the church to be. And the problem with that, whether or not we know it or not, when he says, work out your salvation, the salvation that's been worked into you by God, work that out, the problem is, or the rub is, the fits and starts of that is, is whether you know it or not, you and I are always, 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 always working out a salvation. We're always bringing out from us a salvation. We are always, I don't have to tell you to do this. It is true about you, whether you realize it or not, that you and I are always working out something from a place that we think will bring us a salvation. We're working out, we're working for, we're working from a salvation. We're always working from the place that we think will save us. We're always bringing to light, we're always making externally true an internal reality of what we think will save us. We're bringing to light that thing from within that we think will save us, deliver us, and give us the life that we desire and long for. So Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't say, hey, I need to teach you how to work out a salvation. The question is not, let me explain to you how to work out a salvation, bring out a salvation. The question is, what salvation are you working out? What will make this chronic sense of feeling like I'm not enough go away? How do I work that out of me? How do I work it out to where that feels like it's saving me? Maybe if I can get the house that I want or the money that I want or the recognition that I crave or the relationship that I desire, maybe then I will be saved. Maybe then I will rejoice and have peace and freedom. Maybe then I will feel like I'm enough. Maybe then if I get the thing that I want, that will save me. Whatever we think will be our salvation is always working itself out of us. Jesus says this 
so many times in dozens of different ways. But the easiest way where he says it is out of the heart the mouth speaks. Whatever's going on in here will come out of here. Like this, this is not... Um, this is not something that any one of us have to be shown the, the curriculum or the how-to. We are always working out from what we think will save us. So here's the question. What salvation are you working out? What is being manifest in your life from the place that you think has saved you or will save you or can deliver you? And how would you know what salvation you're working out? How would you know that the salvation you're working out, you're, you're bringing forth, you're bringing to light, is the salvation that God has worked into you or is it a salvation of something else? What would the indicator be that I am working out what God has worked in or what would the, what would the uh, evidence be that I'm working out a very different salvation than the one that God has worked in? Well, wouldn't you know, Paul knew that was coming. So it's the very next line, verse 14. And it's short, the first part of it, but it is, it is powerful. Paul's instructed them, work out the salvation that God has worked in. And then in the very next line, listen to what he says, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Some translations say, do everything without complaining or arguing. Now, you need to know in context, Paul is not jumping ship to go to a different point. He's saying, hey, work out this salvation that's been worked into you and don't do anything from complaining or grumbling. Why does he jump there? In this uh, exhortation from Paul to live out the salvation that's been worked in, why does he immediately go to do nothing with, with complaining or arguing, do everything without grumbling or disputing? It's because grumbling is the indication of what salvation you're working out. Do you want to know the places in your life that you were working out of salvation to what you think will save you? Do you want to know the areas of your life that reveal what's going on and truly show you what you think will give you the life and the salvation that you want? What will finally deliver on the rest and the peace and the joy and the salvation that you want? Here's how you know. Look at where you grumble. Study what you complain about. Look at where you do this. That classic like sigh of disdain, the sigh of contempt at something. Study where you grumble, which is not always an external thing. Sometimes you have to look inward, which is scary because that means not everybody knows where you're grumbling, where you're complaining. But look at where you grumble, look at where you complain, and you will discover the place where you think your salvation is found. You will find the place that you think your salvation depends on and hangs on. For instance, if you grumble over not having enough money, then there is something in you that believes that if you did have enough money, you would finally have peace and rest. If you grumble over not having your kids behave or be the way you wish they would be, then it's likely that you also believe that if they all did behave that you wish they would or should, that you would finally have peace and rest. If you grumble over the way that politics are going or have gone, it's likely that you believe that if politics all went the way that you think they should or could or need to be going, that you believe that would finally deliver a salvation, that would finally deliver a state of peace and rest and freedom and joy for you. That all of our grumbling, all of our complaining, all of our restless arguing and disputing internally, all that's going on in here, comes from a place of not having my life go the way that I want it to. 
not having my life go the way that I think it should be going or that I deserve for it to be going. I believe that my life needs to look a certain way, feel a certain way, have a certain existential reality. I have expectations for my life. And when those expectations aren't being met in some area, there's something that I, that I really want to be happening. There's some different reality than what I have. And my expectations collide with my reality. Here's what happens. I grumble. And what that grumbling shows me is the demands that I have for my reality. What that shows me is if this were just different, I would feel saved. If this were just different, I would have peace. If this were just different, I would have joy and rest. Or in the biblical terms, I would have a salvation. Our inner grumbling is perhaps nowhere more undernoticed or, or uh, ignored or numbed than in the world of social media. This is a breeding ground for grumbling. You go, no, I don't grumble when I read or like I scroll my, my feed. I don't, I don't grumble when I'm looking at other people's lives that I wish that I had. I'm so angry that they have them and I don't know when it's gonna happen for me. And, and here, here's, what I, here's what I would encourage you. And this takes a lot of pause and a lot of courage to look through people's filtered existences, to look through people's worlds where everything is put together. E- e- even when people post stuff, that is about their broken lives and their imperfect lives, we grumble because they do that in such a way that we wish people would then say that about us. Man, I mean, look, at, oh, look how awesome and authentic they are. Look at, how, look at how amazingly beautiful they display their broken selves. Like we've even figured out a way to, sh- like, to polish the turd of our life in such a way that people go, man, I, I just, man, I just, I wish that my life felt like that. I wish that people commented on my stuff like that. I wish that people thought about my life. I wish people were jealous of my life. That person has the success that I want, the life that I want, the affirmation that I want, the confidence I want. And when I don't have it, and I scroll it, and I see it, and I watch it, I grumble. So here's what I would ask you to do. Just, you may not uh, viscerally or externally sigh or grumble, but have the courage and the honesty and the time the next time you look through social media, which is maybe having right now because you're already bored, but if you're already looking at social media, next time you scroll through your feed, notice how much you're internally grumbling. <laughs> what is my, what is, why can't my, notice, just, just pay attention to it. Because if you study where you grumble, you will discover the places that you think will save you you will discover your functional salvation. And what should perhaps sober us up or wake us up is that Paul uses this reference of grumbling. Work out the salvation that's been worked into you. Do nothing with grumbling or complaining or arguing or disputing. And he uses that terminology of grumbling very intentionally. And there's several other references in our passage that I won't even pick apart for you, but there's several other word-for-word references from Philippians 2 that Paul is trying to beam off the page because he didn't have italics or underlines or bold font. All that he's trying to do is he's using enough references and verbatim like quotes to make the reader know, oh, he's talking about the Old Testament here. He's trying to bring the reader, he's trying to connect the dots, he's trying to tie the string to remind the reader that if you know your Bible, grumbling has always been a characteristic of God's people. It's the number one descriptor of God's people, the Israelites, from the moment they get rescued in Egypt from slavery to the moment they arrive at the promised land, Canaan. 
They're grumblers. They're murmurers. They're complainers. If I was a cussing pastor, I would say they're, you know, fill that in. But they, 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 are, they are just constantly moaning at the Lord. They're constantly uh, reveling in the way that this is not going the way that they want it to. And they're, they're just exhaustively grumbling. So let's remember that story real quick because this will help put it in context. Paul is trying to take us back to the Old Testament with all these references in this little section of Philippians 2 and say, hey, remember God's people. Remember this has always been true of God's people. So the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt uh, for 400 years underneath the oppressive rule of Pharaoh. They cry out to the Lord, he saves them, he comes to rescue them, the 10 plagues, the 10 signs and wonders, Nile to blood, locust, you know, death of the firstborn, Passover. They're on their way out from slavery. They get released, they get saved, they get delivered, and they get to the Red Sea. And they turn around and Pharaoh and his army, the number one army of the number one superpower in the world at the time is now pursuing these, this million or 1.2 million nomadic slaves. This is not gonna be a fight. They will decimate the slaves in the wilderness. And so the Lord parts the Red Sea, leads the Israelites on dry, dry ground across the Red Sea. The, the Pharaoh and his army and his chariots come after them. The Lord woos the chariots into the, into the Red Sea and then he collapses the ocean on Pharaoh's army and destroys Pharaoh's army. The Lord has set them free. He has destroyed their captor. He has liberated them. He has put to death the, the former enslaver of them. And that's Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 15, the Israelites burst into song and they sing out and they, they somehow all know this song because they're all singing it. It's like the first musical, like they all just know the words somehow. And they, and, they, and they start singing and here's what they sing out. The Lord has triumphed victoriously. He's destroyed Pharaoh's chariots. He's saved us. He's rescued us. We're free. Can you believe what our God just did for us? Look at us. We're free. That's Exodus 15, the first half. The very next verse, not exaggerating, the very next verse after this um, worship song, the, the, the first worship song in Scripture, the first time they all celebrate what God has done, they start grumbling. They start complaining. And they get across the Red Sea and they realize they're in the wilderness and they go, we're thirsty here. Like, thanks for that, but uh, like, I'm famished. What, did you just bring us out into the wilderness, God, to kill us all with starvation and thirst? I bet, I bet that's why you brought us out here, isn't it? I bet you did all of that just so that you could destroy us all here and kill us all by starving to death. That's one verse after the greatest rescue in the Old Testament. And then, that's chapter 15, that's all chapter 15 wraps up. They do it for the next three chapters is complain and moan and grumble and murmur. And then they get to Mount Sinai and Moses goes up, up on the mountain and he gets the Ten Commandments and guess what the people do at the base of Mount Sinai while Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments? They grumble. And then Moses comes down and he builds the, the tabernacle and they're camped at Mount Sinai for a year. Guess what they do for that year? They grumble. And then they set sail, they, they, they head across the wilderness to head to the promised land, a journey that should have taken them about 10 or 12 days to get from Mount Sinai to the promised land. Guess how long it took them? 40 years. Guess what they did for those 40 years? Grumble, sigh, complain, moan, murmur, over and over and over and over again. Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Go read those, that's the, that's the 
rescue from slavery, journey through the wilderness, and arrival at the promised land. Go read the narrative of the people of God being saved, rescued, delivered, and listen for how often they grumble and moan. If you read that story, the reader is sick of it. Like the reader is exhausted. Like are these people, are they out of their mind? Like look at all that God has done for them in every page. They're complaining about something else and, and throwing a fit about something else and, and, and moaning and, and arguing and making it miserable. Like the reader wants to go, God, just kill them all. Like just wipe them out. Like they're not worth it, God. Like look at, and here's what Paul is doing for us. That's you. After all of the deliverance, after all of the mercy, after all of the grace, after all of the saving, the salvation that's been worked into you, Paul's saying, don't grumble. Don't, don't grumble that we're just like the Israelites. If you read um, Psalm 78, the psalmist uh, recounts all the grumbling that the Israelites did in the wilderness. And he's retelling the story and retelling the reader about how they were saved but they grumbled and they were rescued but they grumbled and they moaned and they criticized and they complained. And then it tells us what's going on beneath the surface of their grumbling. That grumbling is never just an external moaning or sighing, and it's never just about the external circumstances that you may be groaning about. Here's what Psalm 78, the, the recap of the groaning people of Israel, here's what it, it tells us why they grumbled and what was going on way deep in here that was producing the grumbling. It says, they grumbled because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. They did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. They grumbled because they didn't believe the Lord. They didn't believe or trust in his saving power. And you can kind of see it on your own. If you go back and read this, go back to Exodus 15 or 16 or 17. Like they get out in the wilderness and they've been saved and they've been delivered and God's destroyed Pharaoh, their captor. And then the, the first thing they say to the Lord, after they worship him for saving them, the first thing they say is this. They're grumbling, they're thirsty, they're tired, they're hungry, and they say this. Is God even among us? Like, is he even here? Yeah, the Red Sea thing. But like, is he, does he care about us? Is the Lord even among us anymore? And here's the painful realization about grumbling. It's never about the thing that you're grumbling about. It always reveals a deeper issue. It always shows a heart stance. It always reveals how you're doing and how you feel about the Lord. Because buried in your grumbling is, with, is the Israelites, Psalm 78, this is the Israelites asking, is the Lord among us? Buried in your grumbling, buried in your complaining is always a deeper accusation against the Lord. Are you even among us? Do you even care about me? Do you know what I'm going through? Why would you not give me the things that can make my grumbling go away? Why would you not just change my circumstances? I bet you don't even care about me. I bet you're not even among us. I bet you can't even save me. So if you're grumbling about your bank account, I would say you have an issue with the Lord and his goodness and his provision for you. If you're grumbling about your singleness, you have an issue with the Lord and his goodness. When are you gonna, when are you gonna deliver on this? Why, why do I have to keep waiting on this? You know how much I want this. You know how much I grumble about this. I bet if you 
even could find me somebody, you wouldn't do it. If you're grumbling about your spouse or your marriage, you have an issue with the Lord and his goodness. Why did you give me this woman you gave me, this man you gave me? Why did you set this up? Why did you give me this partner? Why are you, this is not going well. I bet even if you could heal our marriage, you wouldn't do it. If you grumble about any circumstance in your life, I promise you, the Bible is not so naive, it is never just about the circumstance. It reveals a deeper conviction about the Lord and how he treats you and how he views you and what he thinks about you. Our grumbling reveals accusations about the Lord that just like the Israelites, just like the Israelites in the wilderness, when we grumble, what our moaning and our sighing is saying is, God, are you even among us? Are you, are you even here with me? Why aren't you fixing the thing that I want you to fix? Why are you leaving me out here in the wilderness to die? Why won't, can you even, can you even save me? And if you could, would you? So I promise you, you don't want my job uh, because, and I've said this before, but when you start studying a passage, um, you have to uh, be thinking about that passage all week to, to preach on it. And so not a great week when what you're thinking about is, hey, do nothing with complaining or grumbling. That didn't go so well, okay? Because I'm thinking about it all the time and having to see how often I do it. And so I'm leaving a meeting this week with a dear pastor friend, and it just came, came up, just happened to come up, how much we make. And he makes a lot more than I do. That car ride home, not good here, not good. Oh, you want me to do this, and you won't even pay me what I deserve to be paid. Are you even among us? Do you even care about my family and what we need? How about last night, 3 a.m., with a throwing up baby on me, toddler, and I'm going, hey, God, I'm getting up for you in the morning. Don't you know I need sleep? Do you even care about your people at Midtown? You're not even, you, you want me to be exhausted tomorrow morning? To go, you know what I need? I need eight uninterrupted hours. That no matter what I'm grumbling about, it's always, always about a deeper accusation at the Lord. Always. Now, we need to pause and acknowledge something as we kind of steer towards this plane landing in the next few minutes. But biblically speaking, there is a massive difference, like needs to be understood and explained with clarity that there is a massive difference between grumbling, we've been talking about, and groaning. That groaning is holy, grumbling is sinful. That complaining and grumbling, and I'm going to say this um, explicitly, but I hope the illustration lands because it's true. Grumbling and complaining is the pornography of groaning. And here's what I mean by that. That when, when, when I want to get around my heart and I don't want to deal with what I'm actually uh, upset about, that I could actually sell myself short for a false substitute, for not the real thing, for not a real experience of what is actually going on. Grumbling is a cheap substitute for groaning. 
Groaning actually takes me deeper into my heart. Grumbling cuts my heart off. Grumbling stops my heart short of my true desire, which is where groaning is. The holy unsettledness. That's groaning. Grumbling will settle for a false version of the real thing. Groaning is biblical. The Holy Spirit groans. Jesus groans. The believer is called to groan because groaning takes me deeper into my heart. Groaning takes me into what I'm actually hungry for. Groaning wakes me up to the fact that the world is not the way that it should be. And I long for the day when all this will be made right and creation will be restored and there will be no more sin and death and sadness and sickness and sorrow. And so when I'm groaning, I'm longing for that place and I'm aware that that's what I really want. Grumbling keeps me up here keeps me moaning and complaining about circumstances not going the way that I want. If you're grumbling, don't sell yourself short and think you've reached the bottom of your heart. Your grumbling could be the doorway to your groaning and to your deeper desire. For instance, last night at 3 a.m., okay, here's what's going on. God, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I need her to stop throwing up because I've got a job to do tomorrow and I need you to fix this right now. But here's what's going on. You know what that's a doorway into? God, I'm exhausted anyway. My soul is exhausted and no amount of uninterrupted sleep could give me that. But what me being up at 3 a.m. is making me realize is that I'm exhausted even when I get a great night's sleep. So what's that about? Do I really need a great night's sleep to get the rest that I'm groaning for? And would it be nice for me to realize and be sobered, in, sobered up into realizing what I'm groaning for is a rest, a soul rest, a body rest that I will never get until Jesus brings heaven with him. So now my grumbling, I'm mad about the 3 a.m. I don't want this to be happening. I could stop there. I could grumble there. I could be angry there. Circumstances not going the way that I want. Or I could go, hey, what is that waking me up to? What, what groaning is that showing me that I'm really, really hungry for? What longing is that taking me way deeper into? So if you're grumbling, don't think you've reached the bottom. May your grumbling lead you to groaning. So here's Paul's exhortation, though, to the Philippian church, to us. He leads them into this. What, what is he leading us? Winning by losing. What is he leading us to lose? What is he leading us to give up? What is he leading us to set down that we might experience a deeper joy in the person of Jesus? So you have to lose your grumbling. You have to lose your complaining. You have to let that not stop your heart from shutting down and thinking that you're at the bottom. You have to let your grumbling show you your groaning and your groaning will show you a deeper reality of Jesus. So what Jesus is he talking about? Well, he says it, it's kind of buried like a treasure in our passage. But look at what he says as we close here, these, just one more time, throw up, start at verse 14, the do not, or do all things without grumbling or, or disputing. Verse 14, I'm gonna read through the end because he's gonna lead us to Jesus here. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. That, that's the same phrase that's used about marriage in the Bible, that the two are holding fast to one another. It's not a, it's not a quickness, like a hold, hold quickly. It's a strength. It's like mortar between bricks. It's like the thing that holds 
and it holds strong and it holds sturdy and it doesn't let go and it's attached itself in such a way that it can't be separated from you saying, hold fast, hold strong, hold thick, hold like mortar to bricks to the word of life. What's the word of life? Well, it's very clear throughout the entire New Testament. The word of life is not some philosophy. The word of life is not even some book. The word of life is a person. Jesus, Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is the word incarnate. When Paul here says, hold fast to the word of life, he's saying, hold fast to Jesus. Hold on to him with all that you've got. Hold on to this word of life who is Jesus. Because when you take a hold of him, you are taking a hold of the one that has already taken a hold of you. When you hold fast to him, you are actually letting yourself be held by him. That's what it means to hold fast to Jesus. It's the excruciating, painful death of self that actually allows us to be held by him, to be hugged by him. And if we're grumbling and we're complaining and we're moaning about our world not going the way that we want our world to go, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're actually experiencing with the Jesus who's already held on to us. We're doing this when he tries to hug us. You ever tried to hug somebody who's like this? You can hug them. They're not enjoying it. They're not experiencing the depth of what that hug and that embrace and the holding is meant to do. And Paul's saying, hey, if, if you're gonna hold fast to the word of life, you, ha- you have to quit grumbling. You're not gonna be able to hold on to the one that's hugging you if you're grumbling and complaining. The Jesus who holds on to you is the same Jesus. Please, please don't miss this. It's the same Jesus who not once in his mission to come and embrace you grumbled about it. He groaned over it. He groaned over what sin had done to his bride. He groaned over what sin had done to the ones that he loved being marred and wrecked. Having the shalom of the world be shattered by sin, he groaned over it. But his groaning moved him and he never complained about it. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if this cup can pass from me, if there's any other way, may it be so, but not my will, but yours be done. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. His groaning, the thing that he knew was on the other side of the cross for him was a deeper joy. His groaning moved him to action to come and embrace his prostitute spouse that said, hey, I know you've slept around on me. I know that you've run away from me. I know that you grumble against me. I know that you don't like the life that you have and you think you could do this better, but that's not stopping me from coming after you because I groan for you, I long for you, I yearn for you, and I pine for you. Would you let me hug you? This is the same Jesus that when his people grumbled at him for 40 years in the wilderness, he still provided manna for them every day. If you go back to Psalm 78, the one that recaps the people's grumbling, and you listen to the crescendo line of the psalm, it's in the middle of the psalm, it's, it's the apex of the psalm. Now certainly the Lord had discipline for his people in the wilderness, he had punishment for them in the wilderness, but listen to what it says about the Lord's heart towards his grumbling people. Psalm 78, verse 38, yet he, it's the Lord, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath, for he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. 
Here's, here's what Psalm 78 just, just told you. The way that you handle people that grumble and complain against you is not the way that the Lord handles you. Do you know how you treat people that grumble and complain against you? Now I want you to extrapolate that out and I want you to imagine someone grumbling and complaining against you for 40 years every day. How, how long your patience would last with that. And imagine for a moment how you would view that person, how you would view that group of people. And it says, being compassionate, he atoned, he paid for their grumbling. He atoned for their iniquity. He did not destroy them. He actually remembered that they were but flesh. Like he remembered their frame. He didn't hold it against them. Now he didn't, he didn't love it. He wasn't celebrating their grumbling and going, yes, I just want to hear your grumbling all the time. He's saying, no, 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 I'm actually not letting your grumbling stop me from moving towards you. I'm letting your grumbling stir up compassion in me for you. That the God who even in our grumbling remembers that we are but dust, but wind, but a mist, is full of compassion for us that he would stop at nothing in his groaning to come and embrace us, to come and make us his bride, to come and make us united with him. In English society, in high English society, if a commoner or a peasant or a lower class citizen marries a lord, they immediately become a lady. And one who marries a duke or a prince immediately becomes a duchess or a princess simply by virtue of who her new husband is. And here's what's happening. His dignity now embraces her in such a way that his dignity now becomes her dignity. That what he has done for her in the embrace and the bringing her in and uniting her to himself, he has totally changed who she is. He has totally given her a new reality about her a new name, a new identity, a new virtue, a new value, a new worth. His dignity now embraces her so that now hers matches his. How much more true is that of us if the one that has embraced us is the king of heaven? What does that say about you? Do you know the one that is embracing you? Do you know the one that has embraced you and didn't let your grumbling stop him from embracing you? Your dignity now matches his. Your value now matches his simply by virtue of who your husband is. That's the salvation that's been worked into you. And Paul says, work that salvation out of you. Work it out. Bring it out, nourish it out, water it, feed it, give it what it needs, tend to it, pay attention to it, focus on it, obsess over it, and bring it out. And the, and the, 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 real, the real invitation of this is when we grumble at him, or each other, but when we grumble at him, would we let that lead us to a deeper groaning for that embrace? That, that's what our groaning is actually about. Our grumbling is really a doorway to see how much we long and groan for this embrace. So we're gonna sing that out. We're gonna repent of that. We're gonna, we're gonna um, groan together as a body. Let's pray.
Jesus, guide us now as we come to confess, as we come to repentance um, and fall into your embrace. Lord, would you turn us grumblers into groaners? Um, Would you um, let us see the compassionate embrace of the one who didn't hold our grumbling against us, we pray. In your name, amen.